Welcome back to the Build Podcast. We're trying something super different for today's episode. As you know, we normally dive deep into a single topic with our guests, but today we're throwing all of that structure out the window and going long form with Alex McCaw on a range of topics. Many folks know Alex is the founder of Clearbit, a product that's used by virtually every revenue team in SaaS today. But back in 2020, Alex stepped down as CEO of Clearbit, and he's been on quite the adventure since then. He sold all of his stuff, and he now lives on a sailboat in the Atlantic, and he even does our interview from the boat over his Starlink connection. And did you know that Alex also started a new company? It's called Reflect, and it's a note-taking app, and he's taking a wildly different path this time around. First off, he's running the company from his boat with a fully remote, asynchronous team, and he's also decidedly not raising venture capital for Reflect and instead going the bootstrapped, customer-funded path. So in today's wide-ranging conversation, we touch on everything from boat life to Starlink to all of the lessons that he learned in his seven years running Clearbit to why he's now building a lifestyle business with Reflect. All that and more on today's episode of Build. So let's dive right in with Alex McCaw. All right, so Alex, uh, first things first, um, we have a, a great background here for you. So you, you got to explain this. Where are you? What's happening? Uh, well, uh, so I'm in the Grenadines right now, um, and I'm on a boat that I built. And I am, we're actually speaking over Starlink, and it's working fantastically, or at least cross fingers. And I'm here. This is where I, I live, pretty much. I sold all my things, got this boat, and I live on the boat, and I do all my programming and working from here. How long have you been living on the boat? I have been living off and on since when I bought the boat, which was um, in de de December of 2021. And then I sailed it across Atlantic from Cape Town to Grenada. Uh, and then that took a month and then I have sailed up in the Caribbean and then I have been living off and on the boat. You know, I, you know, boat life is, uh, is amazing, but it's also tough to keep relationships and see friends and that kind of thing. Um, especially if they live not on the boat with you. So how, how did this all come about? Like, where did the idea to, um, you know, kind of sell out of your things, live on a boat, you know, where did this come from? Has it been like a, a childhood dream or something else come up well i grew up sailing and uh and i love sailing so that's key key thing because sailing is not for everyone um but for some people the, the sea really calls too and i'm one of those people um so uh yeah it was kind of programmed in me from a young age uh and then during covid you know i guess i had like we all did a bit of a shake up you know what's important in your life how do you want to spend the rest of your life uh, and do you know? Do you want to spend it all working in an office in San Francisco, uh, or do you want to explore the world? Um, and there's there's obviously lots of pros and cons to whatever decision you make. It's very um, it's very specific to the individual. But for me, I really wanted to explore and go on adventures. And sailing is one of the biggest adventures there is today. So a lot of people left San Francisco around that time, but uh, you know, went to Austin, went to Miami, went to uh, Montana. Um, I didn't hear a lot of people sort of moving to the middle of the Atlantic. So uh, you're you're definitely the first on that front. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> did you always know that uh, you were going to try to build build a company from from the boat and work from the boat, or um, did that come along later? Uh, yeah, this came along the same idea. I was kind of forming this crazy plan uh, to, to get a boat. Uh, you know, Starlink has been um, in the works for a few years, and that actually had a huge influence on my plans because I realized, you know, the, the biggest thing I need is connectivity. Um, and it's spotty in the Caribbean and it's spotty around the world. But I knew that Starlink was coming. And, you know, while the Starlink wasn't available when the boat was being built, I knew it was only like a year or two out. And now it's here. I have it. It's amazing. It is one of the best things I've ever bought in my entire life. Uh, it is just, I cannot get over the fact that we're speaking through like a satellite connection right now. Um, and so, yeah, that's that really influenced the decision as well, knowing that I could work from anywhere and have good connectivity um, and you know be remote. And the other thing is my company is very is completely asynchronous the way we designed it. So we have uh, three other people in the company, and they uh, one's in Slovakia, one's in China, and one's in the U.S. And so like we have time zone hell, so we don't even try and coordinate time zones. We just don't have meetings. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it can get lonely, so we'll, we'll chat to each other. We actually have a WhatsApp group to communicate, collaborate, uh, and then we call each other every now and again. Uh, but generally, it's all asynchronous, and that is also key to, to living this life. So Starlink, uh, dumb question. How do you even, like, sign up for Starlink? Do you just go to the website and, like, sign up, or is there something you have to do special? Yep, that's it. Your website, sign up. They will send you a dish. Uh, the dish has no buttons or any configuration. You just plug it in uh, and it orientates itself. It's a multi-phased array, so it doesn't need a gimbal, which is quite important for moving vehicles. It just needs a view of the sky. And, and it just works. You get 150 megabits down uh, and you have practically unlimited internet and no really restrictions uh, and it's just it's honestly changed my life it's only been possible because these satellites are in low earth orbit and that has only been possible because it's very cheap to put them there now because of all the other stuff that SpaceX is doing uh, but it is uh, I think this technology is going to change the world now does it work everywhere so um, no at some point they're going to take these satellites and they're going to link them together with lasers um, but until that point happens, uh, the satellites communicate with the ground station. So you went full asynchronous with, uh, with Reflect for necessity reasons. What, do you, what are the benefits of going full async? And then what are some of the drawbacks of going full async? Yeah, okay. So the benefits are no Zoom calls. I cannot stand Zoom calls. And I... I've actually had uh, some deep thoughts about whether I'm going to limit my life like this, you know, because it like, honestly probably limits your career options and all sorts of things in your life by eliminating Zoom calls. But for now, that's what I've decided. So, uh, you know, I went from back-to-back -back calls, um, you know, every single hour in my last job to no scheduled calls, aside from... Uh, the odd podcast. Is it as amazing as I expect it is? <laughs> it's amazing. 
It is. Does it get old? Do you ever miss Zoom? I don't miss it at all. I. It hasn't happened once. No, I don't miss it one bit. Um, and when someone generally tries to schedule something with me, um, usually I put a lot of blockers up. I will send, tell them to send me an email or just chat to me on Discord or what you know. Why do we need a call? Uh, but if we definitely do need a call, then I try and keep that asynchronous as well. So I'm just like, you know, call me on this on this day. Just try me a few times, and may, and maybe that is a slightly obnoxious thing to do, but uh, it is something that I've decided to do, and it's and it's working well for me. Um, so yeah, so that is like that's definitely one of the advantages. Um, the disadvantages, and like if I was to build a proper like venture like back startup that was scaling really quickly. I would move to Austin right now and do that in person. I think uh, I I don't believe in remote uh, for for companies for for big companies, and I know that's going to anger lots of people. Um, and maybe it's just a personal thing as well. You know, I I tend to find that I get a lot more enjoyment when I'm in in person in you know working with a team in, in an office. You know, and I've got. A little commute that I cycle along, and then I got that kind of break between work and you know personal life. I love all of that, and I, I sometimes miss it, you know. And so there is definitely, definitely drawbacks. But for now, at this point in my life, I've decided I'm not going to work on a venture company, venture-backed company. I'm going to try and keep something small, and uh, and do the whole async lifestyle business thing. And so far, I'm loving it. So you said, you know, doing remote uh, or not doing remote um, and sort of if you're going to build a company sort of going into the office, that's very much your your preference. But you also kind of said that, like, you don't really think it works or, or scales, you know, kind of if, if you're trying to build the, the next big thing. Why is that? What, what have you seen there in terms of where remote breaks down? I don't think humans trust each other unless they meet in person. Uh, I we, 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 you know, we have semi-advanced monkey brains uh there's something about breaking bread with people you know eating with people that changes something in the in the psyche and it makes you trust people it bonds people and that is something that I, that's missing for a remote and you know uh to their credit remote first companies understand this you know if you look at the culture of some of them like GitLab. It's a very analytical culture. Everything is process-driven. There's a checklist for everything. Um, you know, and that's the kind of thing you have to do uh, with those companies. And they tell their employees, hey, you want social life? You, you, you want camaraderie? Go and get some friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, don't, don't look for that at work. You know, that's not going to, you're not going to get that here. Like, uh and 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 and, it, and that's fine as well. But it's just it's just not, I guess, my cup of tea, you know. So I, I love working in person. If if we are trying to build something massive together, um, uh, but for something like a lifestyle business, that it absolutely can be completely asynchronous and remote, and and uh, and I love it. But maybe there are people. Well, for sure, there are people that are um, a lot better at me in managing remote teams, and, and I'm sure they think differently. Now, you said if you were doing it, you know, kind of the venture-backed route, you would build a team, you'd build a company uh, in Austin. Mm -hmm. 
um, why Austin these days? Man, I don't want to get canceled. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I just love Austin. I, <laughs> I, I think it is. It's all for the barbecue. That, that's yeah, it. That's exactly. the only reason. <laughs> it, it reminds me a lot of LASF. You know, it's small. It's like semi-boring, uh, which is quite, I think, quite important for getting good work done. It's not like New York, where uh, it's like you know, it's something that's going on every second. Uh, it's got a really great community. I, I've got a lot, lot of friends there. I also think it's got a really good work ethic, and that is important. You know, uh, there's no getting around it. Hard work is how you get successful outcomes, and uh, I'm, I'm just amazed that we've like somehow deviated away from that philosophy. Um, in the zeitgeist, maybe at least, but uh, that that is that is what I believe, and uh, and so I would probably go to Austin. Going back to uh, to Clearbit, great journey, you know, many many years. I'm sure there's uh, this could be like a multi hour long you know conversation over dinner. But biggest like takeaways, lessons learned, kind of from your your first company with Clearbit. Oh, that, I mean, this that's a big question. Uh, you know, I. Ran Clearbit for six years, and during those years, I scaled the company up to, uh, I think, about 150 people, and now it's roughly 180 people. Um, so I, I scaled up the company, um, and and I really transformed as a person. As, you know, I spent the majority of my formative years of my 20s uh, building that company, and so I really really changed a lot. Um, and I, I learned a lot about different things in the business. You know, I'm a programmer. That's my, I'm a very technical person. That's my background. And, and I love building products. So it was really uh, interesting to learn about go-to-market and marketing and how to run a big sales team and do operations and, uh, you know, and do really good finances and hire a CFO. And my God, there's just so much to learn. It, it's fascinating. Um, but, uh, you know, one, one of the things I wish I'd done earlier, quite frankly, was replace myself earlier. Um, I ended up replacing myself, like I said, about six years in, and we found an amazing CEO, um, this, this chap called Ross, who came from SurveyMonkey, and, and he, he had a lot more experience than me around running bigger companies. And what I realized uh, at the time was that people are good at different things, and there's no ego in it, you know? Ross will be the first to tell you that he cannot found a company. You know, he's not going to start a company. Um, but I would also be the first to tell you that I'm not the guy to run a massive company. I don't particularly enjoy it. Um, so I think that would be one of my learnings, uh, is replace myself sooner uh, and and be like just I guess hyper objective about it. Yeah, and and obviously there there are plenty of founders that kind of go all the way and you know still running their their big public company today. There's folks that replace themselves kind of um, you know somewhere along the journey. Um, you know maybe similar point to you, earlier point to you, later point to you. Like 
there is no right answer, but is it just sort of a personal preference thing of like, do you want to do this? Or is there something else that like, if a founder is listening right now and is like, oh, should I replace myself? Like, what's the rubric you use to make that decision? There's this framework that I stole called Zone of Genius. There's various different zones. I won't go into the full thing. You can find out my blog if you're curious, but uh, there's Zone of Excellence and then there's a Zone of Genius. And the Zone of Excellence is something that you are very good at, but it doesn't give you energy. And there is a Zone of Genius, which is something that you are very good at, almost exceptionally good at, and it does give you energy. And by giving energy, what I mean is like the hours just go by. It's like, for example, when I'm engineering, when I'm coding, I can just plug away and then look and I'm, oh, it's dark, <laughs> uh, you know, and it just, it just everything fades away. Um, and so if you find that with business, then by all means, um, you know, continue running a business. Uh, but what a lot of people find is that they, and this is not just with CEOs, it happens everywhere, especially with lawyers. Uh, you know, they are the people that find that they're really good at legal stuff. And it, they thought it was going to be a, um, you know, really safe, good career. Uh, but they end up hating their lives. And um, and this is not all lawyers by, by any means. Some I know that absolutely love being lawyers. But I know a lot that hate it. And I think it's because of this trap where they, they get trapped in the zone of excellence. Where they're like, oh, I'm good at that. So I should do that. And I, I think it should be, I'm good at that, and it gives me energy, therefore I should do that. Now, <clears throat> there's always going to be things that, you know, maybe are in the zone of excellence or the, the zone of shittiness, where it's just like, you have to yeah. do it. <laughs> so like, it, it's not like you can't have the perfect life where it's like 100% zone of genius. There's always going to be like a little bit of that, you know, yin and yang balance, right? Yeah, there is. Uh, and I actually really enjoy, uh, fortunately for me, really enjoy the, the schlep work um with the, the early stage companies so i love like going on atlas and registering a new llc and setting all that up and like setting up the stripe account and wiring up the marketing and the analytics and uh like i like being one of those one-man bands that uh, can do all of that stuff but uh, you know like accounting finances no way i'm gonna do that stuff i i am gonna hire someone to do that um and then uh, I, I clear, but, you know, when we were about 20 people, I started uh, looking around for a COO. Actually, this is a really good learning. Hire a COO or even better, hire a CFO uh, way, way earlier than you think. I would say 30, 30 employees, try and hire a CFO. Uh, hire, maybe hire a head of ops to get to that point. Uh, but after that, get that CFO. They will transform your life. It, uh, it'll it'll make it so much better. You can actually have someone competent to ask some of these big questions, like when should we raise money? How much should we raise? So uh, you know that is that's something that I'm not good at that I, I hide for, and like and uh, and there's so many jobs like that in the company, you know. Sales marketing, again, I'm, I'm not good at. You've just got to hire around yourself uh, and, uh, and you've got to be exceptionally good at finding the best people in the industry to, for those roles and then also firing them when they uh, are not performing, which is, which is probably the hardest part because you, you say to yourself, who am I to fire this 
this industry veteran, um, you know, I've got no experience. But you, that is, a, if you want to build a massive venture scale company, then you have to keep pruning your exec team. Back on this journey of of realizing that you should have replaced yourself earlier, and kind of the rubric that you used and all that kind of stuff. I know something that um, you had done a lot of was, you know, leaning into a relationship with a CEO coach. Well, I was very, very fortunate in that I think that I found the best CEO coach in the world, and he is called Matt Mashari. Uh, and, you know, while he doesn't coach me anymore, he's definitely a, kind of a mentor to me, and I chat with him very regularly. Um, and, and I think the world of him and he really showed me life didn't have to be quite as hard as I was making it out to be, you know, he, we were about 25 people at the time and things were starting to break down, you know, um, suddenly when you start to get to 50 people, er like everything breaks and you have to put in systems. And Matt is a very clear, logical th thinker, and he's also a empath. Like, uh, do you remember these empaths from Star Trek that they could just like completely read your emotions? Um, well, that's that that's Matt as well. So, which is very unusual to have both of those abilities, and that makes him an amazing coach. So, my, one of my number one pieces of advice is go and find that coach for you, whoever it is. Because it's just insanity to try and do this alone. Uh, I, no, no professional athlete would ever like try and win Wimbledon without a coach. Like that would, that would be nuts. Um, so why do CEOs try and do it alone? You know, that's um, it makes no sense. So like one of the best parts about running a venture back company is that you have the resources to really invest in yourself. So I had a CEO coach. I had a therapist, I had a uh, public speaking coach, and a trainer. And like all of those people are basically there to make you like the best leader possible uh, and the best performer possible. Uh, and I always say expense those things because they are, they are, like, are, are part of your performance uh, as a CEO. And you've got to really look after yourself. You know, you've got to really look after your mental health uh, because, you know, it is, sometimes it's absolutely miserable. And uh, you need to have that support network when those miserable times happen. Otherwise, otherwise, you just, you're like, well, why am I spending my life doing something that's torturing me, you know? And you need, and you need, uh, you, you need the systems and those frameworks and there's people there to support you through that journey. Now, you went through that whole journey, you know, Clearbit was a company that scaled up, you know, as you described, you did raise capital, you invested in all of the supporting resources, coach, therapist, trainer, public speaking coach, all of the things you, you know, eventually hired an executive team around you. So you did the, the whole thing. Now you're starting a different company and you're not taking that path. So tell us about the path that you're taking and like why you decided to sort of do it differently this time. Yeah, well... You know, one of the things that I really missed when I was running Clearbit was programming. I, you know, the last maybe three years, four years, hadn't programmed at all. And um, what I eventually understood about myself was programming was how I was creative. And I think every human 
needs to feel that creative energy in their lives. Uh, and we all feel it slightly differently. Some people feel it uh, by managing a team um, or by creating the perfect Excel spreadsheet. Uh, for me, it's programming. And what you will find is if you are not scratching that creative itch, whatever it may be for you, uh, that eventually uh, you will get burnt out, which is kind of what happened to me. Uh, so that was number one. I was like, I have to run a business where I'm programming. And then I wanted to try something completely different. I wanted to try B2C. Part of it was because I wanted a small team. I wanted a lot of flexibility. Um, and B2B is great. In fact, it's a lot easier than B2C to make money in B2B, um, in, in my opinion, a lot easier. Uh, but it does require a large team. The amount of money you make is fairly uh, linearly scaled with your headcount, which is uh, always from a pro programmer's perspective, it's, it is very frustrating because you, just by uh, your natural inclination, love optimizing, but, um, but that, that's the case of it. So I wanted to build a B2C company. I wanted a lot of flexibility. I wanted to travel. Um, and I wanted to build something that I used every day, which is one of the other things, nice things about B2C is that that's possible. So uh, for me, I love writing. So I decided to make yet another notes app and call it, it's called Reflex. And now we have uh, a couple of thousand users and it's growing and it's, and it's lovely. And I, and I make products for people like me. I make products that reflect for me, but also our customers. I love our customers. Uh, you know, and I really connect with them, quite frankly, in a way that I didn't with Clivet's customers. Um, and for me, that gives me a lot of extra energy to, uh, you know, to invest in the company, you know, when you really love helping people, uh, you really love the people that you're working with and your customers. On some of the things you mentioned, B2C, B2C, you can have or leverage or sort of, you know, a smaller team. Why is that? Well, you almost have to because if your uh, average contract value is, you know, for Reflect, we charge like 120 bucks a year, right? That is not enough to afford any sales rep uh, to sell that, right? So you have no choice but to automate the entire sales process. Also, you know, the barrier to entry is easier, like. You know, companies generally do a bit of due diligence before paying $20,000 for, um, for Clearbit. You know, they, they'll do some tests and this and that. Um, and they will probably require to speak to humans, you know. Uh, we, 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 again, we don't totally trust uh, websites. We want to see if there's like a human behind the scenes operating and that we can, we can trust. You know, that's, that, that's another ma major difference to B2C. It's like, okay, it's, you know, 10 to 15 bucks a month. Like, sure, I'll give it a shot. You know, I'll uh, put on my credit card and see if it works for me or not. You know, it's got a free trial. I'll try that, you know. Um, so there's a, lot, there's a lot of different differences there. Uh, I would not say one is better than the other by any means. Uh, but what I have found out is that B2B is a hell of a lot of easier to make money, you know. Uh, to give you, to be totally transparent, you know, in uh, Clovis' first year, we made a million dollars. And um, in Reflect's first year, we made, I think, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And another thing that you're doing differently is uh, you're, you're not going the VC-backed route. And you said, you know, kind of building a self-described 
lifestyle business. Why are you choosing to go that path? Ah, well, <laughs> so I don't have to talk to VCs. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I, I don't I, blame you. <laughs> <laughs> no, is you know, I think this is the future for s- small companies from uh, raising from your customers. That is the future. Like right now, there are a lot of different companies that ha- that could be started, but that aren't started. Um, because people don't realize that this is a viable option uh, or they are started and they take VC money and it causes them to self-destruct um, because they are not like part of the venture model. Like they, if, if you've got to ask yourself, can your company IPO and, and don't delude yourself as well. Like, uh, are there any notes apps out there that have IPOs, you know, don't delude yourself. Uh, and, and if the answer is no, don't raise venture capital uh, because it is a, a very addictive drug. You know, uh, it's not just addictive to you; it's very addictive to your employees. You know, and and if you incentivize them with options, then they're going to say, "Hey, Alex, when are we uh, raising next? What's uh, you know, what's my markup? <laughs> you know, my my roommate just made a million bucks at Stripe. You know, what are you what are you doing again? What what why are we spending time working this idea? And so you actually you'll get uh, pressure to grow, not from uh, your investors typically. Um, you, they don't have to because your employees every day are pushing you to raise the next round and grow and bigger, grow and bigger. And uh, and it makes sense because that's how they're incentivized. You know, they only make a lot of money if the company makes a lot of money, uh, or the company's equity is worth a lot of money. Um, so, uh, you know, what, I wanted to skip all of that, and I wanted to. See if we could a just bootstrap initially, uh, and then b this crowdfunding thing came along, and and I was like, you know, this is actually really interesting because we can raise from our customers who then get even more involved in the business and like feel some ownership there, and and for them it's like um, I I think it's like an expensive Kickstarter that may uh, that they they feel part of, you know, like I send my part of my investor updates, I you know really go into detail about like. How we're building the, the business, like, I, like they're very different from the the updates I would send to a venture capitalist, for example, because I know a lot of our investors have never invested in anything before, so they feel part of it, they feel ownership, they use the product every day, and then we're going to try and make them a return, and the way we're going to try and do that is by paying them a dividend, which is which is insane in the tech industry. Uh, people look at me really odd, like why are you doing that? Um, but I think. It gets around this uh, th- these these bad incentives. You know, let's just say, for example, we uh, even if we did a crowd fund, and but we told everyone that uh, that we were going to try and take another round, and like they would get a markup on their equity, right? Well, what that would mean eventually is that we would have to have some kind of exit. So we would have to get acquired or IPO. We're not going to IPO. It's a notes. It's a note-taking company. Okay, um, uh, you know, no, Notion in my mind is a wiki, company wiki that probably can IPO, but a note-taking company, I don't think can IPO. So, and then I don't want to get acquired because then we'd have to shut the, the business down because the acquire would eventually mess up the business, which is what happens everywhere. You know, 
So all these note-taking tools, they get acquired by Dropbox and shut down. And I'm sick of having to change different tools, you know, because uh, some founder decided to raise venture capital and eventually, a few years later down the line, had to sell the business. So there's, so there's, uh, there's those bad incentives. And then the other bad incentives is around the actual product features. So venture capital will change the actual features of the product, especially in a B2C company uh, where you are trying to uh, decrease the cost of acquisition. Okay, so how do you decrease the cost of acquisition? Add team features. Okay, so that's why all these notes apps that take VC end up as wikis, um, because you you basically go where uh, the money is, right? So if the money is saying build team features uh, because you want some variety to the company and you want the company to grow really quickly, then you'll build those team features, and the single player mode will suffer. The, the paradox of engineering is that there is no code faster than no code and so the more features you add the slower the app is there's like no way of getting around that um and so if you're adding like all these company features and team features and different security things that like socks compliance and all that jazz your apps get slower and slower and slower and slower so that is a very long answer for why i wanted to avoid all of that and just build a like an indie lifestyle company. And I just think we need more of these companies. There should be like, you know, you know, when I, I lived in New Zealand for a bit and one of the frustrating things about New Zealand is there's no Amazon. It doesn't exist. Uh, and so you're like, well, where do, where do I order stuff? And then you start finding this like little cottage industry of all these Shopify stores, um, like, like mom and pop stores, like two or three people. And uh, sure, it's sort of frustrating initially to find these stores. And maybe Shopify should maybe aggregate them or something. But ultimately, uh, it's, it's amazing because you start to build a relationship with these people. Um, and, they, and they really care about the business because they have a lot of agency in their business. Um, you know, all the support is done by the owners of the business. Like, it is it's kind of paradoxical that the, a company's best support is done in the first year when the founders are doing the support. And, and But with these little cottage industry mom and pop shops, the founders keep doing the support. Um, so I love all of that. I think we should bring that to tech companies. Let's have a cottage industry of little tech companies that just do one thing and do it well and do it beautifully. Were there companies or founders that you had sort of looked at or talked to that kind of you know served as some inspiration? Or was this kind of just like entirely first principles, like what do I want, what makes sense, um, what doesn't make sense that led you to this path? Yeah, it's, it's kind of sad that there's so few examples. Um, but there's, you know, there's like a lot, there's some examples that I know about because I know the people involved, but they're not public about it. And, and you know, there's, for example, a company I know that um, sells SVGs that makes $10 million a year. And uh, the founder is extremely happy w with, with that. It's like five people, you know? Um, and that was very inspiring, honestly, that you can, um, uh, you can just build something that works, it's simple, uh, and, and scale it to, you know, 10 million bucks a year. And, I know another company that does $50 million a year. So it's like the, the, these companies are out there, but the incentive is not for the founders to talk about them if they are doing very well. So these, these founders are generally not very public about their successes. Um, now, Reflect, of course, is uh, not doing anywhere near that amount of money. But I definitely had inspiration from a product perspective. You know, I would say like there is 
this new class of internet apps that um, are just so beautiful. It's so great to use. And there's a, a lot of new technology that's just come around in the last couple of years that has made this possible. Things like Vercel, Next.js, TypeScript, you know, um, just some of the new APIs in Chrome, you know, it's, uh, it is amazing what you can do. And if I look at my doc right now, almost all of it is Electron. And, you know, some, some programmers hate this because uh, it's kind of insane that every single app on here is shipping its own browser to my computer. It's not very efficient. It is kind of amazing that these these native apps, they uh, well, they masquerade as native apps, but they actually are web apps behind the scenes. Uh, a good example of this is texts.com. Uh, it's just an absolutely beautiful app that I use for messaging. Uh, so I definitely got inspired from a product perspective from some of these apps. Uh, but from a business model perspective, uh, it's tough to find really good examples out there. And maybe getting into re reflect a little bit, you've you've talked about it, but you know what? Outside of your your passion for writing, kind of what made you say, "All right, I want to build a, a note taking app." I love the technical challenge. You know, um, it's funny, but building a notes app is one of the hardest things out there. It's kind of nuts that you think like, what's complicated about it. It's like there's barely any UI, but when you add end-to-end -end encryption, real-time sync, and uh, like merge conflicting uh, res resolution, and, and a WYSIWYG editor, and all of that stuff, um, then it's a really interesting technical challenge. So I wanted to see if I could, um, uh, you know, was up to that challenge, basically. Uh, and then, you know, that, that was my initial... And that was my initial motivations. It was like a tool I want to use every day. I wanted to write. I wanted to build an Electron app that was beautiful. Um, like it might, that might sound like weird motivations, but those kind of all resulted in, in a notes app. And I think it's actually, I just got lucky that this note-taking tool, this extension of the mind is going to be like really fundamental to the future. I, I didn't anticipate that, but I think like we just added... Um, GBD integration to our app, uh, and it's awesome. And we also added Whisper integration, and it's awesome. And like Whisper is this technology that OpenAI released and didn't get talked about much, but it is like human-level transcription from audio. And now I can like take all my notes verbally and uh, and just you know narrate them, and they're in they're in there, and it's perfect. And that and you sure this has been available before. We've had narration, but now it's the fact that it's perfect means it's totally different. Like now it's actually usable. Um, so I just been I think very fortunate that uh, the kind of my initial motivations, weird and random as they were, kind of resulted in this in this app where I get to play around with all the, the coolest tech right now. You know, the, all the stuff that's coming out like uh, SQLite, Wasm, like all of this all of this stuff, you know, and like we're, we're exploring running models on the, on the client and doing like spell and grammar correction in these models as well. So uh, I have a lot more of these subsequent motivations that have, that have come in, I think just out of pure chance. What are you doing with GPT in the, in the app today? What GPT is good for uh, is it's good in note-taking apps, is it's good for reducing the amount of text. I don't think it's good for text generation. Typically, I think your notes should be a place where they are your notes. And um, 
you know, you haven't generated a bunch of crap uh, in TPD. But I think it's really good for summarization. You, you probably heard of that that uh, that the saying, you know, I didn't have enough time to write you a shorter letter, right? It's um, like summarization is such an important part of thinking, uh, and TPD does it so well. You know, you can just uh, reflect. You can just select some text and summarize it. And, pull out the key points, and especially if it's a recording from, um, you know, a narration, a whisper recording, you can summarize all your thoughts. Um, so there's a lot there. In the future, who knows what will happen? You know, I, I do think these AI bots and so on, they will want context about you in order so you can ask it personal questions about your life. You know, where should I live? Like who? Sh- I don't know who should I date. I like it's it's crazy to think about now, but maybe like this is possible in the future, and the AI will need to know some context about you. What better context is there than your notes? Right? Um, should I move to a boat in the middle of the Atlantic? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Am I the right kind of person for that? <laughs> Tell me exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's and it's a very tricky problem because of security. And your notes are your most personal things in your entire life, your, your innermost thoughts. And that's why we have end-to-end encryption inside of Reflect. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's, there's also a lot of power with this AI stuff. So we are also exploring, like, how much can we do without shipping your notes to OpenAI? Like, um, you know, how many of these models can we run on the client? And I guess with everything that OpenAI is doing now on the LLM side or with Whisper or with like all the other AI, stuff that they have going clearly on. Clearly there's lots of, you know, attention and excitement around it and sort of no shortage of, of tweets and press coverage. But to you as, as a programmer, like what's different now? What's different about this? Well, I don't think anyone expected that we would see these emergent properties just emerge out of big models. We are starting to see like chain of thought reasoning out of these big models. And it seems nuts that, uh, you know, we have some thing that's actually quite simple that we scale up and we get enough data and now it's, it starts to appear to be thinking, you know? And there's a lot of contention around this. Uh, you know, is it actually thinking... Does that actually have any understanding? Um, but I kind of prefer like you know, a, a layman's approach looking at it and just saying like, man, if it quacks like it's conscious, it is conscious, you know? And it's not, we're not there at that point yet, but I don't think we're far off, you know? And like, I don't think human creativity is much more than pattern matching and extrapolation. Uh, so the fact that this all this, all this program is doing is predicting the next token. Uh, you know, I don't think we can necessarily say that that is, it, you know, it's impossible to get creativity out of that. Well, we, we will see. Um, but it, it is absolutely certain that it is possible to build a creative machine because we exist. You know, we are made of atoms. We can build a machine made of atoms that is creative because we are creative. Um, now, whether we're on the right road, you know, road or not, uh, we'll see. But it's looking really promising. It's like these emergent pr- properties. You know, when you, I I asked uh, GPT three to uh, write a 
a Valentine's poem to my girlfriend. And it wrote a beautiful poem, you know? Like, I don't care if it's just predicting the next character. That is, that, that, that's, you know, that's incredible. Mission that's accomplished. Incredible. It works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, God. You know, maybe shifting gears a little bit, like if you were, you know, kind of giving advice to uh, uh, to founders or like the next uh, batch of, of YC companies right now, given where we are in the sort of landscape of startups and of venture capital and of like everything that's happening and, you know, kind of the macro being more bearish than it, than it is bullish these days, like what guidance would you give to founders on sort of start if they're like building now, starting now, like, you know, kind of a, a new company? Oh, yes. This is a great time to start a company. Yeah, start right now. You, I mean, I personally don't think anyone should be like raising money unless they have a product. And some people can't code. I think they should they just learn to code. It's not that difficult. Like, even if you're, if you're crap at coding, like, create that initial product. You should be able to find some angels out there. And if you can't, find some customers, you know. Uh, I think there is like no better time than to start a company like during a recession. Uh, because as you come out of this recession, you know, then you can scale up, scale up. And there's like loads of talent on the market and it's less expensive to run a company. And now you have all this new automation as well. So I definitely do not let the uh, recession kind of dissuade you from starting a company. You know, I think there should be, there's other great reasons not to start a company. Like, uh, are you any good at that? Do you like that? Uh, you, what's your mental health like? You know, there's like, uh, there's, there's a lot of reasons not to start a company, uh, and there's a lot of reasons too, but a recession, I think, uh, shouldn't be one of those. And like you said, there's also more than one path available in that you know, you're going down a path right now um, of sort of uh, letting customers fund the business and taking more of sort of a, a bootstrap lifestyle approach. And you know, kind of as you were saying before, like that should be normalized, you know, that that is a viable path. And so um, also folks could kind of get in their own head and get in their own way of like, oh, well, like, you know, venture capital isn't really flowing these days. Like, is this a bad time to start a company? Am I going to be able to get it funded? But that's not the only way to build a business. Yeah. And, and raising venture capital is not the point of building businesses either. Like the point is to build something valuable that people pay for uh, and solve a problem. And venture capitalists will find you if you do that. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think we need more examples of people running successful lifestyle businesses that are actually very successful businesses in all accounts uh, that, that are not taking on VC because they don't want to sell the business and they don't want to IPO. And I, and I do think VCs should start saying to founders, when they see founders running clear lifestyle businesses, I think they should tell them. Right now... The incentives are not aligned, whereas a VC is like, you know what, A, I don't want to upset people, you know, I don't want to uh, tell them about the business and so on, uh, or B, who knows, like, maybe I'll invest in this lifestyle business and it might be massive later, and I'll just, like, any one of these businesses needs to be successful, um, but I don't think it's doing the reputation of VCs any good either. So I would say to VCs, if you, if you see something that you don't think can IPO, maybe tell the founder that actually there's... Another option, you know, there's uh, some really good uh, crowdfunding platforms out there or, uh, you know, you can raise Angel and like, I don't know, maybe try and pay them a dividend. Let's do something crazy like that. What other advice would you give to VCs? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> founders of long memories. 
Planners like elephants, just because there's a recession, don't start putting like shitty terms in the term sheet. Uh, like, it, it's not worth it. You're not going to make money that way. It's not helping the startup ecosystem. So that's like that's one thing. Although I suspect the kind of VCs that are doing that are not going to listen to my advice anyway. Uh, so <laughs> probably. Yeah. Other uh, other other advice VCs. I don't know. Like maybe like get off Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Don't smell the roses. Life's gonna be okay. <laughs> that is good advice for everybody. If you're if you live on Twitter, maybe take a break every now and then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not real life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you like what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Want more insights from OpenView? Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily PLG content. And head to our website to sign up for our weekly newsletter.